G'day everyone, this is Rita Joyan and welcome to the Unbox Your Gift podcast, how to turn a passion into a profession. This is episode 190 and on this auspicious occasion of episode 190, I bring to you Dr. Yvonne Ridley. If you've never heard of Dr. Yvonne Ridley, when 9-11 took place back 20 years ago, Yvonne was a chief reporter at the Sunday Express newspaper in London. She was tasked to go to New York and cover the 9-11 attacks. However, her editor called her up and said, change of plans, you're going to Afghanistan instead. And without legal paperwork, so she's traveling without any uh, legal uh, visa or any kind of passport to allow her to go into Afghanistan, she manages to get in she will talk to you about how she got in illegally and then how the Taliban captured her and then her experience with the Taliban. What's fascinating to me is that why aren't the mainstream media outlets interviewing Yvonne? I mean, she was the, the Taliban's prisoner. She was their captive. She could tell firsthand what her experiences were and what it was like. But I find it, and I ask her that very question, why aren't the big wigs interviewing you? And you'll hear her answer to that, as well as things like, because she then eventually converted to Islam. She is a huge uh, women's advocate. She lectures at university nowadays on journalism, women in Islam, women's rights, war on terror, the conflict in the Middle East and Asia, especially Afghanistan and Pakistan. She continues to be a journalist. She's an author, a columnist, a scriptwriter, a PR advisor. She's written three books, including The Rise of Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him. And she's been the Secretary General of the European Muslim League. So what you're about to hear is the eyewitness account of Yvonne Ridley, who was captured by the Taliban just when war broke out in Afghanistan when America invaded. And I just want to make a disclaimer here that whatever Islam is a, is a religion of peace, safety, camaraderie, and love. How other people practice it is up to them. Does that make sense? Just like when you cook something, I'm just going to give a very very everyday metaphor when you go into a recipe and you want to cook a great chocolate cake for example right there's a recipe if you follow that recipe you will get the chocolate cake that's promised in that cookbook but if you change the recipe and if you're supposed to add two cups of sugar but you add half a cup you're supposed to add three cups of flour and you only add two cups you're going to get a different type of cake and that's a very everyday layman's uh, metaphor for how i want you to consider islam that there's a prescription for Islam. There is an ingredient to what it means to be a Muslim. And when people play with the ingredients, the what it takes, what it means to be a Muslim, then the outcome, who you are in character, the conduct is, a complete, is completely different or lopsided or jarred. And so please take that into consideration when you're hearing this, because Yvonne's experience is going to blow your mind and it's what led her onto her journey. It's what allowed her to really reevaluate her journalism, her craft. 
And it's what led her to, after that experience of uh, the Taliban, what led her to the journey of discovering Islam and finding out, well, what is this thing called Islam? Are women oppressed? Where does it say that women should be oppressed? And that women should not have a voice. I mean, she's a journalist. That's what she does for a living. She goes and researches and writes stories about her research. So she took this as a, as a story for herself to research Islam, what that did for her in her career, how it changed her perspective, not only about Islam, but in Afghanistan. And it's fascinating to see this because it's what's not reported. It's what's not seen. And this is not something that I've read. This is straight from the person's experience. So uh, I hope you enjoyed this interview. If you do like it, please write a review on iTunes and let me know of your feedback. And if you found it useful, please do share it. And without further ado. Thank you. Welcome to the podcast today, guys. My guest today, Dr. Yvonne Ridley. Before I launch into asking her questions, I want to paint the context of what we're going to be talking about and what the underlying situation was when she was captured by the Taliban. On the 11th of September, 2001, the Twin Towers in New York were attacked, attacked by hijackers through a plane. Now, panic, mayhem, despair, death took over not only New York, but the whole of America and left the rest of the world in absolute awe of what was going on. And so out of retaliation, America decided on a pretense that Osama bin Laden, who was claimed to have masterminded the attacks, was in Afghanistan. Bearing in mind that the hijackers were not Afghan and that Afghanistan had nothing to do with New York, 9-11 or any of the, any attack that took place. And so with that pretense that Osama bin Laden, the mastermind was in some kind of cave in Afghanistan, in Dr. Yvonne's words herself, the richest country in the world would bomb one of the poorest countries in the world. And now that it's approaching the 20 year anniversary of 9-11, since the time that the bombardment took place in Afghanistan because of 9-11, America's own situation of 9-11 has become Afghanistan's 24 seven. And so that terror, that panic, that helplessness, the death, the despair is what Afghanistan goes through every single day. And so, as I've brought Yvonne in, Dr. Yvonne Ridley in today, I want her to take us back as to her experience with the Taliban, how that has evolved her and her work in, as a journalist, and what that means for Afghanistan in her sense of where Afghanistan would be in the next few days, months, years from her analysis as being a correspondent to these issues for such a long time. So Yvonne, you were a chief, you're the chief reporter for the Sunday Express newspaper in London when 9-11 took place. Could you please take us back as to why you went to Afghanistan? What was going on? How did you even get to Afghanistan in the first place? 
Well, this was the biggest story since JFK was assassinated, since man landed on the moon. It was the first time in America's history uh, that anyone had invaded. Um, and it was just, well, apart from when the British set fire to the White House a few hundred years earlier, this was, mm. you know, huge. So as chief reporter, um, I packed my bag and headed off to the airport to go to New York. That's where the story was breaking. But um, by this time, America had closed down her airspace, had uh, sealed her borders. Nobody was getting in and out of the country. And that's the way it was for the next three, four days. And while I was waiting in the airport to get on that first flight out, um, my boss called me and he said, the story is now developing in uh, Asia. We want you to go to Pakistan. And of course, I was quite reluctant. You know, I knew nothing about the culture, nothing about the people. Did I need an injection? You know, was it mm. safe? Um, but anyway, I uh, went out to Pakistan and it was a good call because within a week, more than 3000 journalists from around the world had assembled in um, Islamabad, Peshawar and, and various other major towns and cities in Pakistan, waiting for the war to start in neighboring Afghanistan. All the media had been kicked out of Afghanistan, by the way, that's why we assembled next door. And as the days turned into weeks, I became impatient and I wanted to get a good story. So I thought I'm going to go into Afghanistan and find out what life is really like mm. for ordinary people under the Taliban. Unfortunately, the Taliban had kicked out all of the media and uh, they're much more media savvy today, but back then they kicked out all of the Western media and I couldn't get a visa. So undeterred, um, <laughs> I put on the all enveloping blue burqa mm. and sneaked in with a couple of guides to observe life. Uh, we went to Jalalabad and um, I wanted to find out from ordinary people because Tony Blair, our then prime minister and the then US president George W. Bush were both saying, this is the most evil, brutal mm. regime in the world. They hate women. They don't let kids fly kites. They don't let um, girls be educated, you know, horrible uh, people. So I wanted to find out the truth of this um, because um, of, you know, I wanted to know the difference between mm. the reality, the propaganda and what was happening on the ground. So I was, I got in um, and I was talking to some ordinary Afghan people and within a day I'd um, busted a few myths. I met a young girl in uh, her early 20s who was so frustrated because she had been training as a doctor and she was sent back home to her village. And I said, you know, all through a translator, really sorry, but I understand, you know, that 
the Taliban don't allow women to be educated. And she said, no, that's not true. I was sent home because the college closed down because they couldn't afford to run it anymore. Um, there, there was no money to pay wages. And, and mm. her brother, who was also training to be a doctor, said, yeah, I was sent home too. You know, we're both sitting here. We should be qualified as doctors ready to save our people. And yet, you know, we're stuck rotting in this village. So I found this quite interesting because, um, you know, this was against the narrative that was mm. coming out of Washington. Then uh, while I was uh, talking to this young couple, this larger than life Afghan woman strided in and she put her hands on her hips, which we all know is international language for <laughs> trouble ahead. <laughs> and she looked at me and she said, again, everything through the translator, how many children have you got? And I said, um, oh, I've got uh, a daughter. She said, just one. I said, yeah, just one. She went, you English and American women, you're all so pathetic. All you can ever manage is one, maybe two children. Whereas me, I can have 16. And when you run out of your boy soldiers, I will be producing more. And I thought, wow. wow. You know, this is not how we see Afghan women because, you know, we like to see Afghan women as quiet, Me. oppressed, mm. subjugated creatures and, and um, you know, just loads of images of burqas and, and oppression and women who need rescuing. Mm. And this woman certainly didn't need rescuing from anyone. And I said, you know, uh, aren't you afraid of American soldiers, you know, coming into your village? She said, dare one come into my village and I myself will see him off with those pots and pans over there. And I thought, gosh, you know, she's, uh, she's tough. So that was number two myth blown. Yeah. Um, not all Afghan women are shy yeah. retiring <laughs> creatures. Wallflowers, this... no wallflowers. Yeah. You know, so um, anyway, I was there for a couple of uh, days and and just generally talking to people. And then Mullah Omar, the spiritual leader of the Taliban, had mm. issued an edict that anyone helping a Westerner during a time of war would be executed. So you can imagine suddenly it was like, get rid of the, the white woman. You know, we don't need her in our uh, village. So... Um, I tried to get back across the border um, and it was sealed. So one of my guides said, we'll go through a smuggling route. And I thought, oh yes, that sounds good. I'll get an even better story. And everybody will think I'm so brave, you know, going <laughs> through a smuggling route. So uh, we started out and of course the terrain was rugged and mm. um, I had these plastic, Afghan shoes on and my feet were cut and blistered so I started complaining one of my guides said well can you ride a donkey and he said we'll ride across the border and he took me to these motley creatures that were uh, there 
and uh, there's a donkey trader and he said you know can you ride I said can I ride I said of course I can ride I ride horses back home I go over <laughs> fences I gallop by you of course look at this it's half the size same shape no problem <laughs> So he did the deal. What on earth the deal was, I don't know, because I wasn't going back to return it. And uh, I got on the back of this donkey. Well, the animal just shot off, just bolted. And I'm trying to grab the reins and the wind really caught onto the burka that I was wearing. And that was flapping, which terrified the creature even more. Oh. And it was really going. And I'm trying to lean forward and, and um, screaming and it must have been quite a, a sight and just as I managed to get hold of the reins the one piece of equipment that I'd taken in a camera fell out of the folds of my burqa right in front of a passing <gasps> Taliban soldier oh my god well cameras were banned under the Taliban you know the really they didn't like photography at all <laughs> In fact, they didn't like much at all. But anyway, so, <laughs> so uh, you know, he saw this camera and I don't know if he stopped the donkey or if the donkey stopped, but there was something happened and up I went, thrown into the air and, and hit the ground. And I picked myself up and I'm looking through the grills of this burqa straight into the eyes of this Taliban soldier. And, um, you know, when I got back to London, my friends had said, what was going through your mind at that precise yeah. moment? And I said, well, in truth, for a nanosecond, and it was just a nanosecond, I'm looking through the grill of my burger straight into, and I just looked at him and I thought, my goodness, you are gorgeous. What? <laughs> Honestly, Rita, he had these amazing emerald green eyes. You know, the famous National Geographic yes, magazine yes. Of, of the Afghan woman. Yeah. He was the male version of her. Absolutely <laughs> captivating. Big high cheekbones, a wild mane of hair. Quite stunning. But as I say, that was for a nanosecond. And then the... <laughs> <laughs> the reality set in. <laughs> the reality kicked in. And I just thought, that's it. I'm, I'm dead. So he's screaming at me, obviously wanting the camera. So I took the camera off and I handed it to him. And then I stood back and closed my eyes because I'm waiting to be shot. Oh. And I waited 10 seconds. And it's a long time, you know, yes. to have your eyes closed, waiting to be shot. And I thought, what's keeping him? And I opened my eyes and he'd gone. He'd gone to find the donkey trader because in his mind, if he found the donkey trader, he would find out who was responsible for me. Yeah. Which, you know, what mm. man had brought me in, or mm. brought in a camera. And I just thought, oh, I can get away. So... I started to walk away, saw a group with three women wearing burkas on the end, and I thought, what's one more burka? So I joined them and uh, drifted away. I mean, it, it's a magnificent gown for disguise and, <laughs> and blending in. And so off I went with this, uh, this crowd. And then I looked back, never looked back, but I looked <laughs> back. 
And there I saw the soldier waving the camera at both my guides and uh, very soon an angry crowd had gathered around and I thought, oh, we said, if anything went wrong, anything goes pear-shaped, we don't know each other. Okay. So I just thought, this has gone pear-shaped, I don't know them. So I continued. And again, I looked back and I just thought, oh, I can't leave them. So I walked back and tried to push my way through this crowd of angry men who were pushing and jostling everybody. And as I tried to push through, it was like, oh, and I was swatted away. This is man's business, no room for a woman. And so again, I tried to push my way into the crowd. Again, I was swatted back and I just thought, oh. So I took my burqa off. I was wearing a shalwa kameez, okay. I have to say at this yeah. stage. Yeah. So I took my burqa off and said in a very loud voice, will somebody let me through? And suddenly everybody went quiet and just thought, where the hell did yes. she come from? You could see it. And I walked towards the gorgeous Taliban soldier, who by this time was looking gormless because he was <laughs> mouth wide open thinking, what is this? And I threw a quick glance to my guides thinking, they would look back at me and, and you know, what a, a brave, noble woman. And so I threw this glance to them and they looked at me as if to say, lady, we were in trouble. Now we're in serious yeah. trouble. So I just realized that this wasn't such a great idea <laughs> after all. And in the end, we were all uh, the three of us just bundled into a car, driven off at uh, speed um, back towards Jalalabad. And during the journey, the Taliban soldiers started arguing with the driver and they were both looking at me and, and uh, arguing. And in the end, the driver stopped the car, the soldier got out, opened um, the rear door where I was sitting and he ordered me out waving his Kalashnikov and he pointed for me to stand on this raised piece of ground and then he went over the hill and I thought oh what am I supposed to do now and I'm sort of looking around thinking oh you know it's a bit of a wasteland there's rocks and stones oh my goodness this is the stoning corner he's oh, going to stone oh. me and he's gone over the hill to get um, a, a crowd of people to throw stones very soon within minutes a crowd had assembled of men who were just staring at me and coming closer and closer and I'm looking back at them trying to find a kind face in, in the mm. crowd somebody who would uh, be a hero and, and yeah. stop this stoning and um as you can see, the Western propaganda had started to kick in by this time. <laughs> and, uh, and I'm looking, and, and then I remembered uh, as a Sunday school teacher teaching the kids about how Jesus and his disciples had stopped a stoning. This, this woman was about to be stoned, and Jesus had said, let him without sin cast the first stone and the door oh, gone right wow. and all gone home so I thought I'm gonna say that you know <laughs> him without saying well exactly I mean the, the fact I couldn't speak 
uh, anything other than English and the yeah. fact that they couldn't understand anything <laughs> other than Pashto, you know, was good. Oh my God. But I, I was in panic mode. So I'm looking around and I just thought, I'm going to say, you know, let him without sin. And then I noticed these three old men standing at the back with big, long white beards looking very pious. And I thought, oh, if I say that, they'll probably say, that's us and they'll start stoning early. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, the soldier comes back over the hill, not with a crowd of people, but with a woman wearing a burqa. And she comes down and she roughly turns me around and starts to frisk me. And I realised that um, they thought I was carrying a weapon. And that's mm. why he'd gone off. Instead of just doing yeah. a pat down then and there, he needed a woman to yeah. physically touch me. So she's doing this pat down and I'm thinking those men behind me made me think that I was going to have the most horrific yeah. death. And I got so angry. Wow. I just pulled away from the Afghan woman, turned around at the men, lifted the hem of my shalwa kameez dress and said, I'm not carrying any weapons. Look, and I lifted my dress up. I mean, I, you know, I had the trousers on and sort of lifted my dresser and the men just collectively went <gasps> like that and turned very slowly and then ran as though the devil was clicking at the heels. The woman in the burqa was shocked by this oh inappropriate behaviour. She swung me back round and clashed me over the face oh. uh, because this was highly inappropriate yes. and, yeah. and culturally wrong thing to do and well you know in, but you were desperate defense, yeah you were desperate you were trying to say listen I'm innocent I've got nothing on me exactly and I was wanting to go to New York I knew nothing <laughs> about the culture oh. so you know um and then I uh, I was bundled back into the the car and and sat sent to what turned out to be the intelligence headquarters mm. um, in Jalalabad. And I was held there for the next six days because they thought I was an American spy. And the reason they thought I was an American spy is because they didn't recognize my accent. I come from the north of England by the Scottish border. I live in Scotland now, but you know, this is where I come from. And I said to them, look, we, we don't all talk like the Queen. And they're sort of looking and they're thinking I'm some sort of G.I. Jane character. <laughs> which well, when you, well, when you lifted your shavakamis, yeah, I think they did. <laughs> Definitely did. <laughs> well, do you know, when, when I look, looked back and, and uh, did start to understand the culture, mm. um, I just realised there was a complete clash of cultures. Yeah. They brought down this interrogation team from um, Kabul, uh, great big massive turbans. I didn't realize, but the size of your turban indicates the size of your piety and importance. And they all had massive big black turbans and big black beards. And uh, they sat down um, and, set about sort of questioning me through it again through a translator. I decided at this point um, 
they were going to kill me. Whatever happens, I'm going to be killed. Doesn't matter whether I'm nice, nasty, they, I'm going to be executed. The one thing that once I'd become accustomed to the idea that I was going to be killed, the next thing that focused my mind was, well, I don't want to be tortured. Um, so let's cut out the middleman. Let's get straight, you know, from, um, from the questions to being put against a wall and shot and, and cut out the middleman. So I decided to become the prisoner from hell and just to accelerate my demise. And so I swore at them, I spat at them, I threw things at them, I wouldn't cooperate, I went on. So at this point, they've got you in a cell, they've got you in a cell, and this is when you're kind of just acting out, spit, spitting at them. Yeah. <laughs> and and their, their response was, why are you behaving mm. like this? You are our guest, we want you to be happy. And my response internally was, why are you behaving like mm. this? You're supposed to be brutal and evil. You know, what don't you understand about your job description? So it was a complete clash of cultures. They couldn't look me in the face. That mm. I took as a sign of guilt, which mm. I've since learned was a sign of respect. Mm. So they're looking everywhere but at me. And I'm mm. thinking, yeah, you you can't look me in the eye because you're guilty. And um, by the third day uh, or the fourth day, they came and said, you have lied to us. And I said, everything I've told you is the truth. And one of them through the translator said, you never told us you had a daughter. And I said, well, you never asked if I had a daughter. Yes, but you said that you're not married. I said, but I'm not married. Well, how can you have a daughter if you're not married? And I'm looking at him. I just thought this is, you know, I felt <laughs> I'm trapped in an Andy Warhol movie here. So I said, do you have the concept of divorce in your crazy world? And they sort of looked, you know, and I said, my, uh, the father of my daughter, we are no more. He mm. lives there, I live there. I said, but we still get on. It's very civilized um, breakup. And he then said accusingly, why haven't you remarried? Oh God. <laughs> and I said, I have my own home. I have my own car. I have my own job. I have my own money. Why would I need a man? And before I'd even finished, because I think some of them understood English really, they were reeling, absolutely reeling. And they got up and walked out. They couldn't even look at, you know, in my direction. It was just like, we've got to get out of this, this room, you know, and off they went. And the translator said, what's their problem? He said, oh my goodness, you know, he said, they can't bear to be in the same room with you. And I thought, well, what sort of interrogation is this? I'm the one who's, you know, oh supposed to be, I guess they're still being counseled from the experience. Anyway, the whole thing just went, that, that's how it, it went. There was no meeting of minds. Um, they couldn't wait to get rid of me. I was put up in prison in Kabul for another four days. And um, 
they couldn't wait to get rid of me up there. Um, the, the prison governor couldn't stand me. Um, you know, I just wasn't cooperating. And it was, um, I think it was a relief all round when, uh, when I was released on humanitarian grounds. Mm. I, I don't know, maybe they said to Mullah Omar, either she goes or we go, because, you know, we can't coexist. We cannot coexist with something happening. When I got up to Kabul, I was given a change of clothes. And um, so, and, and one of the girls that I was locked up with, she was German. Uh, she said, uh, would you like a shower? And I went, oh, you, you've got a shower, that's great. Um, and she took me outside into the courtyard and there was a pump there and she gave me a zinc bucket and she said, crank the, the pump so I'm pushing mm. away at this water. And eventually this water started coming out and I said, oh, I said, this is amazing. I said, how do they heat it? And she started laughing and she said... <laughs> It's not, it's not heated. This is your shower. And I thought, oh, gosh, <laughs> you know. Um, <laughs> oh, it's so, so hilarious. So you were actually in a cell with other women. You weren't alone. No. Well, well when they took me into the, into the prison, they did um, try and put me into a, a cell. And they opened a door and I just said, I'm not going in there. I said, I wouldn't put a dog in there. And I said, uh, look, there's been a big misunderstanding. Just put me in a hotel. My newspaper will pay for it. And they said, no, you are a bad woman. You entered our country illegally without a passport. You mm. are go, you know, you have to go to prison. And I said, well, I'm not going in there. And then another cell door opened and um, these uh, European looking women came out, although they were all dressed in, um, is, uh, you know, conservative clothes and, and scarves. And one of them said to me, are you from the Red Cross? And I said, no. And I said, will you tell, you know, I'm not going into that cell. I don't know what. And, then I said, oh, you speak English? And they said, uh, well, we're the, um, the, the aid workers that have uh, been locked up since August. And I thought, oh, yes, these oh. are the ones that are accused of convert, trying to convert um, mm -hmm. Christians to uh, Muslims to Christianity. To mm. And there were... Um, the, the men and the women were separated, but there was an Australian girl... Uh, Diana, who was great, she was like the leader, and there were three German girls and two Americans, and they said, look, do you want to stay in our cell? And I thought, well, if I ever get out of this place, I'll have more to write about. So <laughs> I went, yes, please. And so I went into their cell, and that's when, you know, they gave me a change of clothes. The next day I washed my own clothes and hung them up on the okay. washing line. Wow. Did you ever witness anyone being beaten or getting killed? No. Nothing. No. So the whole time you were a prisoner to the Taliban, it was pretty much you being the, the sassiest of the self you could be, the most, you know, probably the most unwelcome guest, spitting guest, I say, spitting at them, you know, throwing things at them, just, you know, being the worst of your possible self. And they, in return, were just being calm about it? Yeah. 
um, I, as I say, I was totally bewildered. And um, the day that I did my washing, the, the prison governor came mm. into the uh, yard and in his uh, broken English, he said, uh, the washing, remove. And I said, it's drying. And he said, remove. And I said, no, I'm not removing it. And he said, those have to go. And I'm following his line of, yeah. and he's talking about my underwear. Mm. Now we're not talking anything small, lacy and salacious here. We're talking big, black, comfortable, Bridget Jones knickers <laughs> and he's he's saying you know so I said if you don't like them you remove them and he oh. I thought it was going to implode and he spun around and off he went yeah and he came back Rita I couldn't believe it he came back with um a guy called Mr McWattle who was the foreign minister who should have been involved in international shuttle diplomacy between Washington, Islamabad, London. And instead he got embroiled in a row about my underwear oh. on the washing line. And he, he just said, you know, just please remove those items. And I said, what is your problem? This is the female wing of the prison. This is the female prison yard. This is the female washing line. And if you clear off, nobody's going to see my underwear. And he said, no, 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 you don't understand. He said, our soldiers sleep above the female wing of the prison. Mm -hmm. And he said, if they look out of the window, they'll see those items and have impure thoughts. So I'm looking at my big black flappy knickers in a new light, thinking, wow, you know? Oh my God, that's hilarious. But Total I, respect. It just sounds comical that when you tell the story, I'm sure, were you like, it's funny now as you say it, the way you oh, say it. Oh, I was through. terrified. Were I you was terrified throughout. Really? Because you're like, you got sass all over you. I mean, you know, you can't mess with me and they're scared of you. Uh -huh. Well, it's it's like a swan, you know, you see it on this, but it's like, you know, I'm, every day um, I would wake up and think, is this my last day? Mm. Every night I would go to bed and think, is this my last night? Mm. You know, it was just... Um, but th th there were these incidents which were hilarious, which came about through a total lack of understanding of each other's cultures. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and uh, it's, it, you know, just so many different things happened. Um, I was going to say I should write a book, but I have written a book. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> It's out of print now, but you can get the e-book. Yeah, it's what's it called? called? That book, please, yeah. It's in the hands of the Taliban. Yes. And yes. It, uh, it's full of anecdotes like that. Mm. And um, it, it was just so bizarre. 
when the war started, I was still locked up and that was terrifying, being bombed by Britain and America. And I just thought, gosh, um, if anything's going to make them angry, this is, yeah. and, and they're going to take it out on me. Mm. But they came the next day and said, you're going home. And um, they drove me down um, from Kabul right to the, the border. And they were told, don't hand her over to anybody other than the British. Um, the British wow. didn't turn up. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> you know, I felt like you know, I felt like that kid that gets lost in the supermarket and you're waiting for your parents no, yeah. to show and they just don't show. <laughs> it's like, oh. So in the end, I was handed over to the um, Pakistanis. And as I was walking across no man's land, the media, the Pakistani media were shouting over, how did the Taliban mm. treat you? And as I'm walking across, I just thought, gosh, they were actually quite nice uh respectful and courteous and oh I was so bad and I thought I should go back and apologize and I'm <laughs> almost stopping thinking and then I thought no if I turn around and walk back they'll say oh my goodness she's coming back shoot her. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> But so, this is what's interesting. Why is it that they let you go? And like, obviously, England had nothing to do. There's no diplomacy because they didn't show up for you when they when you needed them. Uh, so why did they let you go? Um, I think there were two or three factors playing. My publisher in uh, the publisher of the. Um, Express newspapers was a hard-nosed North London businessman uh, mm. called Richard Desmond. You know, everything has a price in his yeah. world and, and that's why he's been so successful. And as soon as uh, news came out that I had been taken, he immediately sent his best negotiator and right-hand man over with a... Um, a Pakistani heritage lawyer right. and and uh, they flew over and they started talking with the Taliban straight away which the Taliban were shocked at because they've been isolated mm. by the entire world mm. nobody wanted to talk to them only three countries recognized them the UAE Pakistan and Saudi so this was something, um, you know, mm. uh, strange for them, but they appreciated it. And the negotiator, Paul Ashford, a tall man with a beard, that probably helped. He ran Richard Desmond back uh, and he said, well, we've had our first meeting, but he said, I didn't bother getting out the checkbook. And he said, oh, he said, uh, why not? Because Richard had said to him, one million, two million, whatever it takes, just bring her back safe. Mm, wow. And he said, well, they're not interested in money. And he said, well, what do they want? Are, are they asking for weapons? Are they asking for medicines mm. or food? And he said, they're not asking for anything. They just want to be treated with respect. And he, of course, everything has a price in Richard Tesman's world. And he said... I knew these people were sick, but I just didn't realize what we were dealing with. 
So they, they were negotiating with them um, in, uh, you know, just like civilized adults talking and, and uh, bringing out proof that I was a journalist. They got statements mm. and then they translated okay. all of those into Dari and, and Pashtu, yeah. and, which they appreciated uh, that as well. And they, um, so they were in regular contact. But on the third or fourth day, the Taliban were handed a dossier, which was also given to Al Jazeera. And I got to see it a few weeks later after I was released. And this dossier was a bogus intelligence file, which made me look to be some sort of super spy. Um, oh. They had authentic documents like my bank account. Um, and and uh, they, um, but it had been altered so that it looked as though that I was getting regular payments from some sort of spy agency. Um, it's a pity they couldn't have backed it up by putting actual money into my account, but they just falsified the, the, the records. Um, Who did that and they, why did they do that? Well, I was told later um, that it was almost certainly American intelligence because it was a very clumsy, rushed job. Oh. And I said, well, why would the Americans want me killed? And I was told, well, it wasn't anything personal. But it would, it would help kickstart the war. And it was, you know... Are you kidding me? Are you kidding? I've never heard that part of the story. I've never heard no, of that. Genuinely, it would have helped. Um, because my story went absolutely global at the time. And it went global because there was nothing happening for three weeks in the run-up to the war. Mm. And, and so anything that was different than Tony Blair getting off a plane to meet George okay. Bush or, you know, this was something different. And, and um, so this, this was uh, because everybody knew that this poor single mum mm. in, in Britain was captured by the Taliban. Um, if I'd come back in a body bag, a lot of people would have been quite happy. Not because they wanted me to die necessarily, but it would have helped uh, us say, see, we told you they're yeah. brutal, evil yeah. and hate women. So, but because it was such a, a rushed job and because people who did know me did contact the Taliban and other people uh, as well. Um, because of all of that, I think the Taliban thought, well, what's this dossier? What's the purpose mm. of it? You know, they must hate her as much as we do. Well, mm. tell you what, let's send her back. Amazing. We'll hang on to all the, <laughs> we'll hang on to all those other nice Westerners. Yes. The, the Christians were model prisoners. I mean, they were, Oh. You know, they were, bless them. But yes. uh, they must have yes. said, well, we'll send her back. <laughs> Believable. I mean, were you angry at the American government for doing that? Like, that no. was really... No. no? No. I mean, I, um, the, there was a few things that I found out subsequently as, as the years went on. 
Um, When the fall of Libya Mm. um, happened, um, I was over there and I bumped into a fighter from um, who had been in Afghanistan and Mm. he had been in the Al Qaeda camp. Uh, down the road and one of the reasons that they moved me from Jalalabad to Kabul um, was for my own safety because the Arab camp had said why have we got a westerner there why don't we just make an example of her and take off Mm, our head and so this al-Qaeda fighter um, was telling me this he said yeah we were wanting to go and chop off your head and uh, and I went really he said but don't take it personally he said we didn't know you know what would happen because subsequently I did convert to Islam Mm. but it was about two years later so you know a lot of people um wanted me dead uh for for their own purposes here you are and, covering uh, a story, and this is what it's evolved to. You'll become a little like a football in a political mishmash. Exactly. Uh-huh. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Uh-huh. So, so you've, you were able to escape. Now, how many days in total were you captive? I was there 11 days. And, 11 days. you know, I do make light of it, um, but they were terrifying days. Mm. And you know, I think it was worse for my family because yeah. oh. um, I was actually living it and nothing bad or untoward was happening to me. But they only had the propaganda to go on that this was an evil, brutal regime and they hated women. So she, you know, my mum just thought she, yeah. you know, she couldn't bear to sleep because of these course. dark thoughts kept... So it was um, it was quite uh, traumatic, but um, they they did send a cleric who invited me to embrace Islam. Mm. Uh, this was sort of six days in, mm. and as I say, it was really surreal. A lot of the things that happened, and I saw this as an opportunity and had just said I can't make such a life-changing decision while I'm in prison but I said if you let me go I promise I'll read your holy book when I get back and, and study Islam and actually having watched them closely for those 11 days I realized that for them at least Islam was a way of life it wasn't just something that you picked up and put down on Friday prayers. It was all about dress, behavior, diet, uh, mm. prayers, you know, everything in their life. When they came into a room, it was bismillah. Mm. Um, just everything was dictated by Islam. So I just thought if I am to write with any authority, Um, on the Muslim world I need to know about this faith and I mean I the little bit that I knew turned out to be holy and correct I thought it was some sort of moon worshipping sect Mm -hmm. I I really didn't know 
<clears throat> just didn't know. Yeah. So didn't know that the five prayers were obligatory, none of that. Mm. And so I started reading the Quran and it was an English translation by A. Yusuf Ali. And there was an index. So immediately I started cherry picking in the back, looking for how to beat your wife, uh, <laughs> why, why women shouldn't be educated, all this sort of thing. Of course, I couldn't find it. Mm. But what I did find was um, a very empowering message about justice mm. and uh, and the position of women, mm. which was equal to men in terms of um, spirituality, worth and education. So what started out as an academic exercise and the fulfillment of a promise, very quickly for me turned into a spiritual journey. And I already had that core belief in God. So I didn't make a great leap of faith mm. um, from Christianity to Islam because, you know, I'm still worshipping the same God, mm. but um, a different methodology. It's interesting because in one of your interviews, you said that, you know, you were a churchgoer. You went to church twice a month. And in secular Britain, that's I know, bordering. I was a fanatic. Fanatic, yeah. <laughs> You're bordering fanatic <laughs> going to church twice a month. But what I love this, too, if you could tell us the story of what was that incident that had you go from, oh, I'm not sure about Islam, to actually committing to Islam. That, in, in, that encounter you had with that, that gentleman at the mosque, I believe it was. Oh, um, well, I'd consulted with various Christian theologians and, mm. and uh, scholars and, and Muslim scholars. And because of my sort of weird celebrity, um, I was able to get access to some of the, the best minds in Amazing. the Islamic world. So yeah. I was really lucky. But I kept stalling on this business of the Holy Trinity, mm. which in Christianity, God, the Father, God, the Son, God, the Holy Ghost. And it had been drummed into me as a kid. And of course, um, you were just taught not to question and just believe. Um, and so th this Holy Trinity business, I, I just thought, if I abandon the Holy Trinity, that means I don't believe that uh, Jesus is the son of God, um, is also the God. And, you know, it was all jumbled up. And so this uh, brother said to me, you know, what's holding you back? Because you seem to be on song with everything else. And I said, it's the Holy Trinity. And he said, okay, then and I explained. And he said, what relationship is John the Baptist to Jesus? And was, well, they were cousins and he went right. So when John the Baptist prays to Allah or prays to God, he's, he's going, dear uncle God. And I said, oh, don't be so ridiculous. He said, well, exactly. Yeah. He said, you know, you're either a, a, a God or, or, or a human and mm -hmm. the, you can't mix the two. Mm. And I thought about it and, and he said, when Jesus called God the Father, he wasn't talking about the physical father or being the son of God in as much as we're all the children of God. And he was just saying father, as we would say 
to to God and I just mm. yeah and and um and so that in a you know that was it it just made mm. really made sense for me Amazing. and so that was about the final hurdle and are you now a practicing Muslim yes mm-hmm Fantastic. Not the greatest, you oh. know, um, like everybody else. I'll, yes. I'll struggle. Um, Absolutely. Some days I do great. Uh, other days, you know, uh, let's write that one off and, and um, yeah. <laughs> we'll take it afresh tomorrow morning. No, that, see, that's very interesting because what's happening now on the ground in Afghanistan that the Taliban have swept into Afghanistan again in a matter of days. Some people say the transition of power of Taliban coming in was smoother than the US elections that have just passed. And what's what's really interesting is that um, on the ground at this very moment, there are protests that the Taliban are not actually Afghan, but from Pakistani origin. And that the women who are now in uh, Kabul who are protesting are protesting that fact the fact that the in pain shared that what's going on the resistance movement that's going on in pain shared with um, Ahmad Masood, that the choppers that are falling down they're Pakistani, that the Taliban the, the predominantly are Pakistani. What have you? What's your analysis of what's going on on the ground at, at the moment, and that the Taliban are not Afghans completely? Well, I've I've heard this and. Um, there's a lot of um, false information, uh, I think, um, that has been going going mm -hmm. on. Um, you know, I've looked at the origins of the Taliban, and they just started off as thirty men mm. um, who had been refugees in the camps in Peshawar um, and in the madrasas in what was then the old um, Northwest Frontier Province. And that they had taken on this Diobandi style um, ideology. Then they'd returned home and, and set up in, um, in a village in Kandahar and didn't have any ambitions to govern or to lead. You know, they just wanted to not contemplate their navels, but they just wanted to immerse themselves holy in mm. um, Islam. And then there was this, um, the country, of course, at that point was totally lawless. The Mujahideen mm. had gone yeah. out of control. Yes. The, the warlords yes. were disgraceful. And there was um, a woman apparently who was raped and she had her head shaved and lots of other humiliations and the family had snapped. And they went to Mullah Omar and his band of merry men and basically said, sort it out. You know, you're coming here spouting all this about Islam. Well, do something about this. And so they went out and promptly killed this warlord. And his men came to them and said, right, well, we're with you. And, uh, you know, it was obviously much more complex than that, but mm. they then went through the, the country to install, install law and order, um, met with some resistance in some parts, were welcomed in other parts. And um, before they knew it, they, were, they had control of about 80% of the country. And I don't think that they 
ever had ambitions to govern and they weren't ready for it. They weren't fit for it really. And, and mm. we saw that in, um, in, in the decisions that they made and they were incredibly naive and they thought that they could um, just get away doing what they wanted um, in Afghanistan and they wouldn't have to engage with uh, the world outside, mm. which was really naive. And of course their um, brand of Islam was uncompromising, quite yeah. rigid and, uh, you know, must have been very tough for a, a lot of um, people to to live with but i i do know that pakistan has helped i mean mm. it's one of the worst kept secrets in the world that mm. pakistan um did give uh, shelter and succor to the uh, taliban in their fight back but they've had 20 years to reflect on their mistakes. They've had huge influence from Qatar, which puts um, a big emphasis on education and diplomacy and soft power. And some of that has obviously rubbed off on them. Um, They've been in control, almost running a parallel government since about 2013-14 in the south of Afghanistan. They've raised their own taxes, they've run their own courts, and none of this has been reported mm. on. Mm. Um, there's a, a very good um, academic uh, report done by... Um, gosh, uh, an, uh, an American uh, called Gilly's um, Doran Sword. And he has said, uh, he, he, he's written this paper for the Carnegie Endowment about uh, the Taliban strategy in Afghanistan. And it's fascinating. And he, he was saying um, you know, that they had this network, this uh, administration, this shadow government, mm. but it's, it's just not been reported upon. Perhaps one of the greatest um, advantages that the Taliban has had is that um, lazy journalism and propaganda has written them off as barbaric medieval mm. um, men who run around in flip-flops and, and carry Kalashnikovs. And that has probably suited their purpose because um, maybe they were like that in the, um, in the early 90s. But, you know, they've got laptops now and iPads and, and are quite sophisticated. And they have uh, been setting in place yeah. this parallel government. And they've obviously also cut deals. Yeah. And we can see that mm. in, in this very depressing caretaker government that they've yeah. produced um, with some of the people. I mean, you know, I'm an outsider, so um, I'm not sure 
how ordinary Afghan people feel within mm. the country. But um, I would be very crushed and, and disappointed. The only good thing that I can take out of the announcement of the, the new government is the word interim. But we know um, interim doesn't have a, a start and an end date. Yeah, it's temporary, but you know how long is a piece of string? Yeah, and yeah. so I, I don't know how you felt when you saw the makeup of the government. Oh, but it was... yeah. Well, look, what I noticed was there was um, there used to be a department for women. I don't not know the exact title, but that doesn't exist mm -hmm. anymore. The Ministry uh, of Women. Ministry of Health seems to be absent from the delegation of ministers who were taking portfolios. Mm -hmm. So those are the two portfolios that are missing that are, were, that are obvious. And so if you don't have female representation in a government that has already been uh, labeled as one that really depresses women in society, I think that's, that, that would make any, any female, any father of a female, you know, any husband, very nervous for their own family, that it's it like it's it's not moving ahead. There's no voice for a female to shout out what their needs are, um, and it's taken Western countries a long way to get female representation. I mean, there's arguments now in Australian politics that there's not enough female representation. So, I, but I, but the point being, it it's always a struggle, and then if it's a struggle in Western countries, you can only imagine how it's going in developing countries where when there's no voice well then is there any consideration for the female plight in a country like Afghanistan? I remember going back to Afghanistan in February 2002. Mm -hmm. I went in with um, the BBC to do a program for Radio 4 and I went to meet uh, Sama Seema, uh, the mm. first ever Afghan women's minister. Mm. And uh, she wasn't deemed important enough to even have her own office. She was the only ministry without an office. Yeah. And I just, and that saddened me as well. And again, um, I blame uh, Bush, Blair, mm. uh, Hamid Karzai, mm. you know, standing there telling us all, this is what we're doing for women. Nobody has been exploited more, I guess, than Afghan women. Although it would mm. be churlish not to acknowledge, yes, you know, we've had, um, we've seen uh, the uh, rise of female judges, of uh, women in positions of power, and you know, education in some areas has really benefited um, girls, but it's been largely cosmetic. Yeah. So um, you're saying that the the plight of women under the Karzai government, under the previous Afghan governments, are in the same position. Maybe it was just a facade, but it's the same lack of representation. Where it's even if it's Taliban or if it's the Karzai or the Ashraf Ghani government. Is that what you're saying? It's, it's, the problem is men, mm. you know, not just Afghan men, um, you know, look at Bush and Blair. They mm. sent out their wives to give 
simultaneous press conferences saying our husbands are going into Afghanistan to liberate the Afghan women. Well, that was BS. Mm. And if ever two women were exploited by their husbands, it was Laura Bush and Sherry Blair. Mm. Um, it, it's not just uh, the Taliban. It's uh, not just Afghan men. Um, it's men in general, the patriarchy, the misogyny um, that, you know, we've all seen. I mean, I, um, I keep forgetting that we're, we're talking um at different sides of the world. But uh, I've uh, recently read Julia Gillard's uh, yeah. yes. biography. Yes. She was absolutely, I mean, that blistering um, session she had in the in Parliament. Australian yeah. Parliament, where yeah. she totally slammed down this misogynistic uh, mm. man. And uh, you reading her story the you know trials that she had just mm. in in politics yeah. so you know unfortunately the reality is if men can control and get away with it they will and i think that uh, various governments are jumping on attacking the taliban because it makes us all focus on them and not the, the men closer to home. But I remember interviewing uh, Malala Joya, yeah. um, the youngest ever Afghan female MP. And she stood up in the Karzai government and called it out for corrupt behavior. So instead of listening to her, they switched off her microphone and then she got, uh, so she, she lost her voice, you know, she's, mm. she's suddenly switched off and then she got death threats and subsequently she fled from Afghanistan. Although I hear that she's back. Um, if that's so, then, you know, I'm, I'm pleased because, you know, she's another feisty Afghan woman and, um, and the country needs you know yeah. these strong vibrant intelligent women um and, and it's it's interesting that you say that Yvonne because your experience is just so unique it just doesn't paint the narrative that is going on in mainstream I'm, I'm just curious to know because I we briefly said something about this before we pressed record why isn't mainstream media interviewing you on your experience, on your interactions? Because if anyone has anything to say, it's you. Mm. Um, I have been interviewed uh, around um, South America, mm -hmm. in Australia, South Africa, um, some European countries, but hardly anything in America and Britain because um, I say that the Taliban were demonized by the West beyond recognition. And it got so bad that it's very hard to roll back. Even today, the BBC says the Taliban who refused or uh, would not allow um, women to be educated. And that is, is just a lie. 
I've since met people who were building girls' schools under the Taliban. I met um, a headmaster in uh, Britain just recently who said to me, you know, when the Taliban came to power, they came to visit us and asked to look at the curriculum um, because they were wanting to develop a curriculum for the girls because the only books that they had at the time were left by the Russian occupation, mm. which was obviously promoting communism, yes. which, you yeah. know, they didn't want that to be yeah. continued in the schools. So why the, the BBC promotes this lie? I mean, the, let's face it, the, do you really need to blacken the Taliban? Um, name, you know, they did a pretty good job themselves in, in the 90s. Mm. And, um, and then at the press conference, I don't know how you felt watching it, I was gobsmacked. I thought, my goodness, you know, the Taliban is talking about women's rights. And that's why I was quite crestfallen when the uh, the government was unveiled, albeit the, the interim uh, oh government. Mm. Um, no ethnic minorities in there. Yes. Uh, yeah. And no, no women. Mm. Hopefully, you know, they, um, well, as I, I'm, I'm still a bit flawed about it. I just thought that they, would have had at least two or three women in there. And um, they've obviously had to fulfill promises or pledges um, to get to power. And that's exactly true. I mean, even the absence of women, the absence of the Manori Hazaras who are petrified because mm -hmm. they are a minority and they have throughout the history not been treated kindly uh, and anyone would attest to that who has lived in Afghanistan but what's interesting to me is if western media hasn't approached you have the Taliban contacted you and said hey you are a success story of ours I mean I'm just saying in layman's terms would you like can we do a collaboration here you know you know how we roll can you come and do a collaboration tell you know, have they not come to you I mean I'm surprised about that even I was invited to witness the uh, Doha right. agreement in Qatar, um, mm. but that was right on the cusp of the start of the pandemic and lockdown, mm. so I wasn't able to travel. Um, and I said, you know, I can't get to uh, Qatar. And they said, don't worry, we'll invite you when we get to, uh, to Kabul. So I'm waiting for the invitation. Oh, wow. I have been in touch uh, with some uh, key members. People have said to me, oh, you should, um, you should be involved, you know, in, in the government. And I said, do you not think they've had enough of Western <laughs> interference? Yeah, yeah <laughs> you know, re true. really. And, mm -hmm. and as you know, which, and they were half joking, but I just found that quite insulting. Um, to the Afghan women, because mm. um, again, you know, while they've been demonizing 
the Taliban, they've really undermined Afghan women. I mean, you must be fed up of, mm -hmm. of this portrayal of, of this, you know, wearing the cloak of victimhood and oppression and, and being, you know, quiet and shy. And, and uh, when, you know, I know that, um, that that is just, it's not true. You know, mm. and Afghan women are incredibly strong. Well, just like I the remember, women. Sorry, go on. Yeah, I remember in the prison in Kabul, um, the scary governor had come out and he said something to the prison officers. They were female, by the way, so the mm. Taliban did employ women. <laughs> and uh, they started laughing. And the Christians who bothered to learn the culture and the language, um, they started laughing too and saying, oh, what's so funny in the said, oh, he's come out saying, look at the time, I've got to go and see the boss. And some one of the prison officers had said, oh, Mr. So-and-so in uh, the head office. And he went, no, the real boss, my wife. I said, I'd be home by one o'clock. Oh, wow. And so that's what they were laughing at. And that's something that probably every man, not every man, but a lot of men around the world can identify with because, you know, they begrudgingly acknowledge yeah. um, the, the power of the woman who runs the household. So, but I, I, oh, I, I just can't hide it, Rita. I am bitterly disappointed mm. on behalf of Afghan women that they, mm. they haven't... Um, included women as yet but yeah. i'm eternally optimistic well, well there, there is no other choice but to be optimistic especially when the taliban themselves say we are we have changed we are not the same please be we are on your side like they gave reassurance that we and from that reassurance you would have thought well hopefully being having qatar's influence having had mm -hmm. 20 years to re readjust regroup you would think that they would now be more inclusive at the least, practically. Uh -huh. Well, mm. I, I don't know. Um, I mean, that, that press conference was blinding. It was mm. amazing. Um, but, you know, I, I did say, well, the words are great. Now let's see the deeds, but I'm afraid yeah. um, if it was homework, it would be sent back and must try harder. You know, it, it's, it's <laughs> true. That's true. It, you know, I, Yvonne, I, I was just thinking about the question just came to me that you, there was 9-11 changed a, a lot of things in the world, but it specifically affected you because of this being captured to the Taliban's after you left and then you were treated kindly by the Taliban. That seems like an oxymoron, um, mm -hmm. you know, to the Western world. You were treated kindly. And then on reflection, you thought, actually, you know, they were actually nice. And I'm going to uphold my promise to look into Islam. And when you converted, how did your work as a journalist, did it change pre-being a Muslim? To, what oh, changed? yes. Uh -huh. um... People said that I was suffering from Stockholm Syndrome. And I can understand why they would say that. But um, of course, I have to laugh because I did not bond with my captors. 
Mm. In fact, when I was handed over, I don't know who was happier, them or me, you know, <laughs> just to, for, for it all to, um, to, to end. And in fact, Sahail Shaheen announced that I was being released. And um, he was saying that she's a very bad woman uh, with a very bad mouth and she needs to be controlled. <laughs> and wow. that's what it, it was uh, quite funny. And this was something that um, Mullah Zaif, uh, the mm. then Taliban ambassador for Islamabad mm. said. And um, so there was absolutely no bonding at all. Um, in some ways, um, the worst thing that the Taliban did was be nice to me because when I came out, I told the truth and said they were nice. If they'd knocked me around, chopped off a limb yeah, or something, yeah. I'd be a hero now. Yeah, I'd just yeah. be on a constant merry-go-round of, yeah. of interviews. Mm, um, mm. But uh, And when I converted to Islam and uh, put on the hijab, the BBC called me the former journalist, Yvonne Ridley. And I had to write to virtually every department and say, excuse me, I am still a journalist. Yeah. Um, you know, wearing a hijab does not change my career. <laughs> and that took quite a, a, a lot um, as well. So mm. it's, um, you know, it has been uh, tough. Uh, people don't like the fact that I've converted to Islam and I've had incidents where people have threatened all sorts um, because I'm now a Muslim uh, but the the funniest one is, it was when I was walking through um, near Westminster in London mm. and this man sort of he was drunk and he sort of staggered up and got to his feet and he said why don't you go back home oh. and I'd, I've heard this said to people of colour mm. and and, mm. uh, and he, he said it to me and I've got this northern accent and I said I do go back home as often as I can and, mm. and he sort of looked and he was shocked. Um, and I, I have experienced um, this sort of racism, Islamophobia, um, which I never ever thought that I would do um, in my life, but there, there it is. I mean, I'm under no illusions, you know, about white privilege and that probably played a great part Mm. in um in my treatment yeah. in Jalalabad and and Kabul um and the the westerners that they held uh there they were all christians they were allowed to hold their services twice a day they really? all had bibles yeah and wow. this wasn't now this wasn't quiet sort of contemplative prayer that i was sort of used to this was hallelujah, praise the Lord, really full on happy, clappy, evangelical. Um, With the Taliban around them? Yeah. Oh my God. Wow. Uh -huh. okay. And I, I, was, um, I was surprised at that because I remember standing in, uh, in the courtyard, um, I was smoking like a trooper 
um, although I was on hunger strike, I, I hung on to my cigarettes and I was smoking out in the courtyard. Oh, because the girls had decided this was a no smoking cell. How I found the only no smoking cell in Asia. But anyway, um, so I'm standing out in the courtyard and they're doing all this happy clappy hallelujah and singing and, and all of this. And then when they finished, the call to prayer started. And I just thought, gosh, you know, um, I've got Christian fanatics on that side, Muslim fundamentalists on the other side. And people will imagine I'm being tortured. And I am, but, yeah. you know, not in the way that they yeah. expect. Um, the funny thing was, uh, because the Taliban were very iffy on music, um, they had confiscated their tambourines and guitars, and I thought, thank you. <laughs> hey, but, but having said that, I mean, those girls were brilliant, and their faith got them through their yeah. ordeal. Mm. You know, you mentioned before, Yvonne, that the BBC referred to you as the former journalist once you had converted, mm. yeah, but you were still a journalist, it didn't matter your faith. When we talk about brands in the media, BBC, NBC, CNN, you name it, like all the acronyms that exist. Uh, when we take a look at brands, how, is, it, is it true from your perspective that one would need to be cautious when listening to big brands and the anchors and the correspondents and the reporters? Because there is an agenda past the news, like there is an agenda that's going on beyond the newsroom that the presenters have to adhere to. So does one who's the consumer of such news, do we have to be on guard from your perspective? I wouldn't say on guard, I'd be discerning. And if you hear something from one news source, check it out with another news source, try and get corroboration. I mean, I've seen so many stories in the Indian media um, about these fighter jets from Pakistan flying over mm. and and bombing um, Panjshir yeah. and accompanied by video film. And it was just a defense expert had said, hang on, uh, yes, that is a, an F-16 fighter jet, but that's a training exercise. And it was over Wales and... Oh. And then there was uh, another one that came out yesterday showing drone attacks, Pakistan again, sending drones to Panjshir Valley and, and using mm. drones to help the Taliban and all of these images. And um, this 14-year-old said, no, that's from my Xbox game. <laughs> and so, you know, you see things on TV screens. In fact, television is probably, probably you should be more cautious mm -hmm. because you're hearing it, you're seeing it, and, and um, which is all very convincing, but it could be a lie. So mm -hmm. okay. the Indian media in, in particular has been on steroids recently, yeah. I think. Yeah. with all of the misinformation. But the trouble is when they come out with that sort of misinformation, it damages uh, when something really horrific does come out. 
And then people think, well, is that real? Is it made up? And, um, you know, it, it's, it, it, I, I really get angry over the whole thing of fake news. Um, so you mentioned uh, one international broadcaster there and when the Taliban arrived in Kabul, the day after uh, this uh, news reporter was suddenly wrapped up as though she's in yeah. downtown Raqqa. Yeah. And she's standing in front of uh, Taliban soldiers who were shouting, Allahu Akbar, Takbir, Allahu mm. Akbar. And she said, this is weird. They're shouting death to America. America yeah. And I thought, this is weird because yeah, yeah. they weren't. Yeah. And I, you know, thanks to technology, I was able to run back yeah. the, um, and, and in case, you know, mm. maybe I had misheard, but I couldn't hear anybody saying death to America in yeah. English or in, um, in Arabic. Mm. Um, and friends who, who speak Urdu and Pashto later said they couldn't hear it either so yes. um and this was a hugely respected yeah um broadcaster and i just thought gosh can i trust what they're saying in future so so does that happen on purpose like that level of uh, what's the word Lie. It's that true. It's, to call it what it is, it's, it's a lie. That translation is not correct whatsoever in any definition. Well, is I that don't know. How, well, I don't know. I, I don't know why she said it if she didn't hear it. Mm. And maybe she did and we didn't. Mm. But, you know, I really ran it back a few times to give her the benefit of the doubt because I hold her in such high respect. That's why I'm not naming her. But, yeah. you know, it was just really... Um, it was just, as far as I could tell, it just wasn't happening. Yeah. And um, it, it, uh, and then another reporter was walking around. Um, this was at the height of the airport turmoil. And here, you know, he's saying, I'm walking around in Kabul, the Taliban are here. And he's walking past them and, and they're sort of, you know, smiling and obviously have been told, behave yourself for the cameras. And he's saying, so I'm, I'm walking around and um, there's a lot of Islamic dress, conservatively dressed people around. And I thought, yes, because you're in a Muslim country, <laughs> yeah. you know, and, but it, uh, and of course, the Westerners had gone. Mm. Yeah. They were all at the airport mm. or staying indoors. And then he was also saying there's a lack of women on the street. Anybody with any sense would have stayed indoors those first few days mm. because you just mm. don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Are they going to kick off? Mm. Uh, is there going to be fighting? I'm stay there's no way I'm going to work today, or mm. you know. Mm -hmm until I'm called in. So I could understand why uh, there, there weren't that many women on the street in Kabul. And, but it's just the way that things are said. Um, the same with 
kite flying. Hmm. One of the chances that I got to ask um, the Taliban about was uh, why did you ban ch children from flying kites? You know, what on earth were you thinking of, of doing by stuff? And they said, well, we didn't ban them in the countryside, but we banned them in the towns and cities because they run across the rooftops, get overexcited and they fall over, oh. or they'll get the, uh, the kites wrapped around the uh, power cables yeah. and they'll pull them and the power cables and they get electrocuted. And I said, look, I've flown a kite before. And I said, you can't cut through a power cable with a piece of string. And they started laughing and said, yeah, well, our kite flying is slightly different. And, you know, most of the kites have a wire through them. Sometimes yeah. they're dipped in glue and powdered glass. Mm. And the whole point is you cut down your competitor until there's only one kite left flying. Mm. So if they did wrap around a power line and they pulled them, they could slice through the power yeah. line. So I thought, well, I can understand that. And then I realized um, this is the power of propaganda. I could probably go filming around um, housing estates in Britain and no ball games, no skateboarding. Mm. And just say, you know, in Britain, children aren't allowed to kick a ball. Mm. And people would see that there's no a sign saying no ball games. You know, in Britain, mm. children can't even get on a skateboard. And you'd think, what the hell? Mm. But this is, you know, propaganda. You get a little grain of truth and then you stretch it. And it it's um it's it's really uh sad when you as I say, the BBC today are still promoting the myth that girls weren't educated and kite flying was banned. And they've taken this or it's been fed to them and it's become fact. Now then, do you continue repeating a 20-year-old lie or do you drop it or do you say, hey, we got this wrong and we're really sorry? Mm. And you know, so far, they're still, you know, promoting this, um, this lie. So that's, that's really interesting take, Yvonne. So if someone is looking to be, get into the industry or is in the industry, to speak your mind, to speak what is the truth that you see eyewitness that is not affiliated with any big brand agenda, would it, that just be easier to just be a freelancer and be a video journalist or a, a, you know, writing for yourself, but publishing openly, but just not working for a brand? Would that be a, what's the word, a more, would that just ignite the passion of why you even got into journalism? Mm. I, th I think that um, it's still good to go through some sort of formal training. And I don't know whether I'm just getting old and crusty, but, um, you know, my training involved being so precise on locations, on names, on addresses, um, you know, it, being accurate, you know, it was really drilled into you. And it was a big shame if you 
got a letter in saying you spelt my name as Smith with an I when it's Smith with a Y and an E and you know just little things like that but it just I mean I was um, listening to a broadcast the other day and again it was an international broadcaster and they had Afghanistan in the Middle East and you know just schoolboy howlers like that and you think What's happened to the training yeah. of journalists these days? Yeah. But I, I, you know, for anybody who wants to be a journalist, I would say to them, it's a fabulous job. It's great fun. Um, but just try and be true to yourself. And, you know, it, it may be that newspapers and, and um, media, different media outlets have a slant on a story Mm. um but you know you can only stretch the truth so far okay and um but you risk your life like but i just think most journalists like you you were a visitor to the west you're a visitor to the west bank but you were on the boat in gaza the first boat to Mm -hmm. break the siege of gaza in 2008 for the first time in 42 years, you were on that boat and then you were surrounded by Israelis. And in that moment, you thought, oh, my God, I'm going to die. This is it. And then you get caught by the Taliban. I mean, is that what it's really about to cut? The, the, the adrenaline rush is what, what it's all about. Would, would that be true? Um, oh, gosh, it's, it's so difficult. I mean, you know, there is quite a buzz. Uh, living on the edge without a doubt um and and uh but the 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 gaza trip was all about raising the issue of um the fact that gaza hadn't had a is on the mediterranean and yet it's they're they're not allowed to fish Mm. they're not allowed to um go more than two miles out then you know some days it's one mile and um but it's it, at that moment in time um i was i just thought yeah we are going to die i really did think um that we were going to die but i mean you know when you're in that situation there's nothing you can do about it so running around mm. the boat saying oh we're going to die isn't going to help the situation yeah yeah um and nobody did that to be fair to them Mm -hmm. although there were a few well i think we were all concerned at one point um Mm -hmm. okay i just find that you know being right now a, a video journalist per se because there's a lot of journalists on the ground in afghanistan at the moment that i'm seeing their videos they're not affiliated with any particular news station but they just upload it to YouTube or TikTok or wherever, and they report from what they're seeing. And I, and I look at what they're doing compared to what, what is being broadcast on mainstream, and there is a contrast. There is, And that's why I wanted to ask you the question, like, is it necessary to go through a big brand? Because right now, I mean, for the past 15 years, you can do it on your own without having to have backup. Well, you, you can. Um... I mean, I've been into Afghanistan with the BBC and I've been into Afghanistan on my own. With the BBC, um, you have to go in with your passport and visa. You can't just sneak in. 
you um, have security with you all the time. Okay. And in Kabul, you're living in a compound or in a hotel and security will do a check or it's a bit like the weather you know what's the weather going to be like tomorrow mm. or is it safe and if the security guy says no it's not safe everybody stay where you are you're not able to go out anywhere which is okay. really frustrating but on your own you can mm. um but of course There'll, there'll be little or no insurance. Mm. You are vulnerable. You don't have the backup of security. But then the advantage is you can get around a lot quicker mm. um, without having to have all the security. As soon as anybody sees a convoy of vehicles, they immediately think that's somebody important or it's somebody from a big organization mm. whereas um i mean it was one time we went round in a little yellow taxi with furry dice <laughs> dangling and <laughs> uh and and i guess anybody looking to kidnap any westerners of any value would have just totally ignored this little taxi beetling all over the countryside without mm. air conditioning and you know really mm. um quite quite a rough journey but we got got through and um so there's there's pros and cons okay. to 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 going in on your own to going in with the backing and support of a big agency okay as well as the contacts that the agency has well yes that yeah. that is um that as well yeah is there anything um that i that i haven't asked you that you wanted to say in this interview Yvonne? no i think uh it's been quite exhaustive really it, it's been um it's been great it's been you know i've really enjoyed it I don't, uh um i just wish that uh this is a you know afghanistan is turning the corner i have to go and you know it's it's such an amazing country mm. and i think um you know they've they've got this support from china um not known for its human rights either mm. but china wants to reopen the old silk Mm. road trading route and of course afghanistan is in a strategic position for that and i had heard that um you know they're already holding trade talks with china russia um iran and that's important you know that they're reaching out to iran because that's something that would never ever have um have happened with uh Taliban mark 1 mm. and and um you know if they're going to get over this sectarian nonsense uh because i do feel for the hazara i know mm. they've been horribly persecuted and if anybody um will be disbelieving of the taliban yes. it will be them, them. And, yeah. and 
and with good reason. Mm. But, you know, they, they've said that they're reaching out to the Hazara. I would love to believe that. Mm. Um, I did ask them why they had destroyed the Bamiyan Buddhas. Oh, what did they say? Well, this was really telling. Um, they said, I mean, there was no excuse for it, but they said the world had isolated them. The UN had walked away from them. They weren't getting any aid. People were going through a famine that was so tough. They were digging through the snow just to find blades of grass to eat. It was uh, really horrific. And somebody had reported a story saying, um, are we, what are we going to do about the Bamiyan Buddhas? Should we just get rid of them? And it was probably somebody just thinking out loud. And they said, suddenly we were deluged with requests from around the world, uh, from countries, delegations came and they were all, you know, we've got to save the Bamiyan Buddhas. We've got to do this. And it was like, hold on, we've got two, three million people starving to death and yeah. you've ignored that. But you're all rushing in now yeah. for the sake of a few rocks. Well, if you mm. want rocks, we'll give you rocks. And they, I mean, there's hundreds of these statues, but of course it was the two biggest ones, I think, or three biggest ones that they knocked out. And they just blew them up. You want rocks, you can have rocks. And it was a very immature, petulant, reaction but that was what was driving it it wasn't religion um or you know let's get rid of these stone worshiping idols you know okay. otherwise they would have just taken there was you know there's hundreds of them mm. but um it was the the reaction of the world that's it incredible was, that's incredible uh, well we saw a bit of this um in the syrian war with um the falling uh, of the destruction in Palmyra and ah. suddenly a lot of people became interested in the Syrian war not because it had displaced 11 million people um, but because these ancient um, buildings were being destroyed by um, ISIS so it's uh yeah, it, it's um, but that story about the Bamyan Buddhas was was quite eye opening. Oh, the other eye opening thing that they told me, um, which I thought was quite telling again. Um, I asked them about their relationship with Al Qaeda, yeah. and they said they came in as our guests and ended up acting like our masters, and. That's um, at that point, I really detected that there was no great love between um, the Arabs and the Afghans. Mm. But I suspect once um, George Bush launched his war out of necessity, mm. they needed to uh, to come together. That's that's juicy stuff. That's mm -hmm. really and. I mean, I think you would have thanked God the fact that you got inside eyewitness 
<laughs> I mean, like literally, like, yes, it was a scary ordeal being captive by the Taliban, but oh my God, you got the stories of the century. I mean, hello, God loves you. <laughs> it worked out. It worked out for you. Yvonne, I just wanted to say thank you so sincerely for joining me on the podcast. I've taken more time than what I had said I would, but I, I this is such an intriguing time in the world what's happening in Afghanistan right now and I was just so eager to get you here to get your insights um and if the Taliban in your experience are the the kind kindness that they showed you I pray to God that they envelope Afghanistan with that kindness because it's just been in so much bloodshed for so long that it just it's it's absolutely yearning because just some love the country is just yearning love and I pray to God that if they do exist that they do continue that they give that love that give that attention and the kindness that they showed you and they spread it throughout Afghanistan so thank you so much for giving, taking the time and taking us through your your story in Afghanistan okay well thank you Rita I've really enjoyed the experience thank you thank you guys and we'll catch you on the very next episode Thank you very much for your attention for this episode with Dr. Yvonne Ridley. I hope you enjoyed it. From Chief Reporter to Taliban Captive, How America's 9-11 Became Afghanistan's 24-7. If you found this episode useful, helpful, enjoyable, please do leave a review on iTunes and give us a review. We would greatly appreciate that. Your feedback to us is the oxygen that keeps this podcast going. So please do take 30 seconds to go into iTunes and leave a review and a comment. And if you found this useful, please do make sure to share this with your friends, your family, to really engage a narrative that's not always seen on mainstream media, to engage with a narrative that's on the ground, grassroots, that's been experienced, and that I hope you can be in the domino effect for perpetuating the truth. Because the saying goes, the first casualty of war is the truth. And by doing this podcast, it was my intention to get an eyewitness account of what really happened to Yvonne, of her experience, an account that is usually not uh, given on any mainstream media. So if you could please engage with this, we would be sincerely grateful. Thank you. And we will catch you on the very next episode.